Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We're glad to have you with us. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1, if you're not there already. I'll begin reading in verse 1 as we continue our series in Genesis. This is our fourth sermon in Genesis, and we're going to start the first day. So if you look with me there, Genesis 1, I'll read verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this for what it is, the word of the Lord. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding, that he would keep my mouth from error, and that he would keep our congregation's ears from error, and that we would hear what he is saying to the churches. We want to hear from our Lord, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and we know that as we gather as a body to hear the word proclaimed, inasmuch as it's proclaimed truthfully, we are hearing from him. May we receive it as such. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we move into the first day of creation. I say we move into a discussion of the first day of creation because I will pick up part of this first day of creation next week as well. But I want you to look at the end of verse 5. It says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day or on one day. We're learning about the first day in these verses. And it's natural to want to learn about our origins. We want to know, as creatures, what our creation story is. And so today we continue to learn our creation story. Now next week I intend to look and to contend for the length of these creation days. So let's look more specifically at this discussion of there was evening and there was morning the first day and what exactly is meant by a day. But today I want to consider three truths as we look at the first day. First, I want to consider that what I'll just term God's word or God's speech or God's saying something. Second, I want to consider God's approval, God's approval of his own word, of his own speech, of his own creative acts. And third, God's rule, the fact that God rules over that which he creates. So let's begin with our first truth, God's word. Look with me at Genesis 1-3. And God said, or God spoke, let there be light, or light be, and there was light. I want to note the patterns that start here and run through Genesis 1. And what I'll be doing over the next few weeks is continuing to show you the patterns that are happening in the language of Genesis 1. So you understand how to read this historical narrative and what Moses is doing for us here. One of the patterns that you need to understand is there's a lot of repeating of particular kinds of language, and it's repeated in particular numbers. For example, things are repeated 10 times, or things are repeated 7 times, or things are repeated 3 times, and that's not incidental. 10 times in this chapter, we read the refrain, God said, or God spoke. For God to say or to speak is... For God to give a word of command. He is commanding something to be. He is speaking something into existence. It was not. Then God spoke and it came to be. 
look at Genesis 1-3. And God said. That's the first one. Look at Genesis 1-6. And God said. Look at Genesis 1-9. And God said. Genesis 1-11. And God said. Genesis 1-14. And God said. Genesis 1-20. And God said. Genesis 1.24, and God said. Genesis 1.26, then God said. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God, look at this, said. Genesis 1.29, and God said. You see the pattern? Clear enough, repetitive enough for you? God speaks. The psalmist teaches us to sing here about, if you will, God's creative word. God speaks And things happen, and we are to, or come to be, and we are to sing about that. Listen to what it says in Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers up the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God spoke the light into being. Now when we look at this language of God spoke the light to being, we're talking about God's essential word. In other words, here's what I mean by that, the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him And without him was not anything made that was made. God created all things through him, his son, the word. And what did God create through the son in verse 3? He said, and God said or spoke, let there be light. Now what's meant here by the creation of light? When it says God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. There's not sun or moon or stars until day 4. So how can there be light How can there be light? Well, I mean, in one sense, we're not really sure, other than to say that God often creates, or more than once in Scripture, creates light without the sun. He doesn't need sun, moon, and stars to create light. Think of the light he provides to Israel in the Exodus. Or think of the new heavens and the new earth, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lord does not need mediating sources like the sun, the moon, and the stars, to create light. Though, I please hear this, while the Lord does not need mediating sources, he ordinarily uses such sources to provide us with light, which is why we wrestle with the question, how could there be light on day one and sun, moon, and stars on day four? Because our ordinary experience is that God creates light, if you will, through those mediated sources. But God is not bound to create anything through mediated sources. We must remember the context here. At the beginning of the creation, there is darkness over the face of the deep. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void. As I said last week, it was uninhabitable and uninhabited, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There was a kind of watery darkness that was a veil covering the creation, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters like a mother bird hovers over her chicks in their embryonic form about to bring them from a point of 
embryo to a form of full-grown adult, maturity. And so we see the Spirit here working, not that God's creation is corrupted, but that God's creation is yet to be completed. And so then we read in the six days, and which culminates in Genesis 2-1, so God finished all his work. He completed it. But notice in the incomplete state of creation, in creation in its embryonic form, there is darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit is there to beautify the creation as God forms it and fills it and beautifies it into a full-grown adult creation. Aquinas comments that the Holy Spirit is there attending to the creation like an artist who loves his work. He is beautifying the creation as he carries all things to their proper end. This light, then, is then spoken into the darkness. Now, I want to be clear. God did not create darkness. The embryonic creation was shrouded in darkness, and God created the light. Darkness is the absence of light. So God spoke the light into being. But why begin with light? I don't even know how to pronounce his name. I've read him more than once, St. Basil or Basil. I'll call him Basil so that you don't mix him up with an herb, just in case I'm wrong. Argues it's because, why begin with light? He argues it's because all other things are made manifest by the light. Why start with light? Because all other things are made manifest by the light. Matthew Henry, following the same line of thought, provided some more helpful explanation. He started with light, that the first of all visible beings which God created was light, not that by it he himself might see to work, for the darkness and light are both alike to him, but that by it we might see his works and his glory in them, and might work our works while it is day. Why create light before the sun, moon, and stars? That becomes another question. Why not just start with the sun, moon, and stars in day four? Now, some have posited, and I'll deal with this more in day four, but some have posited this is a kind of polemic against the gods of Egypt and Mesopotamia or against ancient Near Eastern gods who were given to worship celestial bodies as gods. Thus, to have light without the sun is a polemic against a false god. It's like saying, we don't need your gods. We can have light without them. They're false gods. But let's keep moving by noting what the end of Genesis 1-3 says. He said, let there be light, and there was light. This is a fulfillment formula, and I want you to pay attention to it. And there was light, or, and it was so. We see this fulfillment formula used seven times in Genesis 1. So God commands... With his word, he has, if you will, ten words in Genesis 1, which isn't incidental to the fact that there are ten words in the law given by Moses. He has ten words in Genesis 1, and he has seven fulfillment formulas. And it was so in the seven days. It was so. Look at Genesis 1, 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the first one. Look at Genesis 1, 7. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Look at Genesis 1.9. And God said that the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Look at Genesis 1.11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Look at Genesis 1.15. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. It's the end of the fourth day. And it was so. Look at Genesis 1.24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, 
according to their kinds. And it was so. Look at Genesis 1.30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. God commands, and things come to be. God does all his holy will, and none can stay his hand. None. Thus God's word always stands. Always. Listen, folks, we must remember that the creation account is ours to learn from, but it is not ours to critique or to apologize for. I don't mean give an apology in the sense of defense. I mean give an apology in the sense of I'm embarrassed. Or to try and recast so that it might cohere with whatever the elites of our current moment are saying. I'm not saying when I take a shot at our academic elites, particularly those in the sciences like Tim, I'm not saying that we cannot learn from science. I'm assuming we can. God created the heavens and the earth with well-ordered distinctions. I talked about that last week. He shed the light abroad through creation and formed and filled it, thus studying the creation, studying the things that God has made in accord with his fixed laws by observation of how things ordinarily work is possible. And it's not only possible, it is an admirable creaturely activity. It's admirable. Further, in studying the creation, I want you to hear the scientists do add to our knowledge about the creation, about the things that God has made. They do add it. What do they add? They add things to our knowledge that the Bible does not address. What's a cell like? The Bible doesn't address that. God created them with well-ordered distinctions. Thus, scientists can look at them and tell us all about the beauty of God's creation of the cell and its well-ordered distinctions. And they're there. If you've ever been in a science class, you're expected to chart out that cell and map out all its well-ordered distinctions. But what scientists cannot do is they cannot pull back the curtain of creation to the point where, where the heavens and the earth were not and then tell us how they came to be. They can't do that. Rather, they can only make observations regarding what already is there to be observed. So we need not be rattled by scientists who claim a sort of divine status for their knowledge. We live in a kind of era of scientism. It's sort of a religion that really is rising more and more in the face of secularism. The white coats are the new prophets of our secular age. If you want to know it's true, just bring out a man in a white coat, let him make a declaration, and you've heard from the prophet. And apparently, if you run the CDC, you're the chief of all prophets, And that's true, just as psychologists are the new priests for our therapeutic age. If you want to know what ails you, go to one of the priests. We are now required to heed their word and follow their wisdom. Follow the science has become the dogma of our secularist moment. I don't entirely even know what it means. It's just sophistry. It's just the government using language to manipulate you for the purpose of power. Please hear this. Those folks are merely arrogant academics who fail to recognize the limits of their own disciplines. I want to add one more thing. We would be well served to raise up more young scientists. Please don't hear me eschewing the notion that Christians ought to engage in science. Quite the opposite. Maybe our problem is that we've abandoned the sciences too much as Christians and turned it over to those who don't know the limits of it. Who better to observe God's creation than those who know the Lord who created all things and adorn them with beauty? Here is our origin story. You want to know it? God spoke and all things came to be. There it is. 
Now let's move on to our second point and see God's approval of his work. I said I want to talk about God's approval of his own work or his own speech. Look at Genesis 1-4. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God saw that the light was good. He saw that it was good. Moses is saying that, if you will, he admired his work. It's not that God discovered it was good. Oh, what a good thing I just did. That's not what's happening. It's language given to us. God is admiring his own work. God's approving of what he's done. His judgment is that the light is good. This is what we might call the approval formula. I said there's 10 words over these six days that give us the creation, and there are seven fulfillment formulas. There are also seven approval formulas. Look at Genesis 1-4, and God saw that the light was good. Look at Genesis 1-10 at the very end, and God saw that it was good. Look at Genesis 1-12 at the very end, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1-18, last phrase, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.21, last phrase. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.25, last phrase. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This comes across in narrative prose in an almost poetic sort of fashion where God is admiring his handiwork. He's admiring it. He sees the beauty of his well-ordered work. And you can see a kind of historical narrative with a poetry to it as you read Genesis 1. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying Genesis 1 is poetry and not historical narrative. I'm not saying that. It is a historical narrative that has a sort of poetry to it, a beauty to it, that fits the well-ordered creation with distinctions God is making and declaring to be good. God's creation is beautiful and well-ordered. And Moses is recounting the history of creation. And in doing so, he can't help but write the account in a beautiful and well-ordered manner. In admiring his creation, Moses is telling us that God is judging that his creation accomplishes the purpose for which it was made. God is good and he creates good things and every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. But these things are not good because they benefit God. God gets no benefit from them, for God needs none of them. It wasn't like God said, I'm bored, uninspired. I need something beautiful to gaze upon. I'll create it, gaze upon it, and then I'll be improved by it in some way. I'll finally fill up some lack in me. That's not what happens here. These things are good because they benefit God's creatures. God's loving beneficence is being displayed in the beauty of creation, of how the creation is good for the creature. It accomplishes the purpose for which God spoke it into existence. God's goodness and love are shown in his enlightening, in his distinguishing, in his adorning the creation. God's judgment of the creation is that it is good. Matter is not evil, it is good. It is good for man, it fulfills its purpose, And it's beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. Now let me make this appeal once again. I want you to hear it from me strongly. When I was a young man, I hated science and math. It was like drudgery, dull and boring. I don't know if any of you feel that way. And as I've aged, I want you to hear this language. It's important. I have repented of my immaturity and my ignorant posture toward the things that God has made. 
God created all things and he ordered them and there's a peculiar beauty to it all. A beauty I only began seeing as I aged and matured in the faith. Now, and some of you are like me, now I wish I understood math and the sciences better. Merely so I might enjoy God's created order and beauty more. The older I get, the more I think it's a shame I didn't pay more attention in an astronomy class or a biology class because I'm taken with the creation more and more. I'm particularly taken with trees. I don't know what my problem is. I love trees. So I see them everywhere. I wish I knew more about trees. I've, Teresa knows I'll plant them everywhere if I can. I like them. Maybe it's because there's such a lack of them where I live. <laughs> May we see a day where, in which we raise up more godly young people who admire God's creation in a manner analogous to his own admiration and who devote their lives to showing us God's well-ordered beauty in creation. So God spoke all things into existence, and he approves of his creation. He says it's good. Let's look at God's rule, God's rule over his creation. Third, so God spoke, God approved, and now look at God's rule. Genesis 1-4 again. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Note this language of distinguishing or separating. God distinguishes. He separates and then he names. Gordon Wenham, an Old Testament scholar, points this out. Listen to what he says. Separation or distinction is one of the central ideas in this chapter. God separates darkness and light, upper and lower waters, day and and night. Elsewhere, separation almost becomes synonymous with divine election, and Israel is expected to become as discriminating as her Lord in distinguishing between clean and unclean, holy and profane. We're going to look more at that in the coming weeks, but I want to return to this idea in future sermons. I want to return to it, particularly next week or the week after. We'll see. For now, I just want you to note how important it is This is a key to biblical cosmology. Well-ordered distinctions is cosmos, while disordered and indistinguishable stuff is chaos. I spent time on that last week. I'll look at it a little bit more today, but I want us to understand that. I want to look at the next wording, though, in verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. God's calling or naming or blessing, is also done seven times in Genesis 1. He calls or names or blesses seven times. We have this divine word of either naming or blessing seven times. Look at Genesis 1, 5. It's twice. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Look at Genesis 1, 8. And God called the expanse of the heavens, Genesis 1, 10. God called the dry land earth. And then also in 1, 10, the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. Look at Genesis 1, And God blessed them. Remember I said there's a naming or a blessing. And God blessed them. Genesis 1, And God blessed them. In naming and blessing, God is asserting his sovereign rule over something. It's his. He names it. He orders it. God rules as his creation. And as our ruler, God blesses his subjects. Naming also distinguishes what is created into proper roles. So God assigned darkness to night, 
and light today. As the king of creation, he distinguishes and gives us our roles. This is becoming harder for us to understand as we want to blur distinction and remove roles. We want to overthrow the created order of family, of male and female, of parent and child, of government and governed, of church officers and church members, and most importantly, of creator and creature. I actually want to take a little bit of time to see the implications of this in six ordered relationships I just named that we want to overthrow. So we don't accept God's rule. We don't accept his ordering. We don't accept his distinguishing. And it's foundational to our understanding of what God has made to understand that he rules them. He created them in a well-ordered fashion. He distinguished them, and he assigned to them their roles. He's sovereign over them. We want to overthrow the relationship of husband and wife. Look with me at Ephesians 5. Paul knows we want to overthrow this in the church, so he addresses it. 521, I want to pick up on 521, this phrase, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, is probably better translated, submitting one to another. In other words, here are the ordered relationships. This group submits to this group. Wives submit to husbands, children submit to parents, slaves submit to masters, etc. But notice what he says, wives, verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Submit basically means obey. You can see that again in 1 Peter 3. I don't really have to comment much on that to know that you're already bristling at it. Paul knows we will. You mean wives are supposed to obey their husbands? Yes. That's not very egalitarian of you. It's not very egalitarian of God, I suppose. He made it this way. Now, If you look at the next text, the disorder doesn't just happen with women. It happens with men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands can tend to abuse their authority. Also a disordering of the relationship, an overthrowing of the way God has made things, a misunderstanding of their proper role. Parent and child. Look at Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children are to obey their parents and parents are told, verse 4, fathers, and I'll incorporate mothers, though fathers as the head of the house are named. If you look at verse 2, that children are to obey their father and their mother. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Calvin uses the language, fondly cherish them in the discipline, the paideia, and instruction of the Lord. You're to culturate them and instruct them. Listen, we've lost all sight of this in the modern age. You are not forming children in accord with their appetites. You're disciplining their appetites to conform them to the truth. We live in an era in which we, if you will, modern psychology is sort of dominated and told us that the reason that children's, or what may I say, they won't even use this language. Here's the bottom line. Children's souls and bodies are disordered so that their appetites are often making demands upon them and they do not put their bodies into subjection to what is true and good and beautiful. They aren't learning to be virtuous. They're learning to be feelers who just effuse from their appetites and demand whatever they want. And we've been taught that both in parenting and in modern education, that the job of the educator and the parent is to somehow manage their appetites. Manage them. Find ways to accommodate them. If they make demands, you accommodate them. You find ways to just manipulate, manage, and accommodate. 
rather than discipline and instruct them to kill those appetites where they're wicked, or if by wicked I mean overindulgent, and to put them in subjection to the truth. We've lost sight of that. So if you look around at the culture, we have a bunch of human beings who are being raised to give in to their appetites, and they don't look like ordered human beings. They look increasingly like irrational animals, and it's becoming chaotic. You can see it. Third, slave and master. Look at Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, I don't have time. Masters are also going to be told to treat their slaves properly. I don't have time to deal with the notion of a slave economy. We're not in a slave economy anymore. They were, and all that we need to untangle with regard to this text and what he's saying. Here's what I want to say. We are in an economy, and God has ordered your life likely with a boss or an employer from which you gain your livelihood. You work, and you likely work for someone. So here's a question. Do you obey your employer, or are you always on the ready to give them a piece of your mind? God put you in that relationship providentially. God providentially put you under an employer. Do you honor them and submit to them? Do you work for them as unto the Lord? Or do you constantly rail against them and attempt to overthrow them and give them a piece of your mind? If you're an employer, there's a word for you there too. You can't mistreat your employees. That's also disordered. Government and governed. Look at Romans 13. I know what you're thinking. What does this exactly have to do with God creating the light? I want you to understand that God has ordered all things and made them beautiful and rules over them. And we've overthrown that. Chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God gave us government, and we're required to obey. Now, there is a long conversation that has to be had here as God providentially placed us in a constitutional republic. Thus, sorting out who the governing authorities are isn't as clean as having an emperor. In our system, the people have granted the government particular powers per a constitution. Thus, the government has no lawful authority outside of that. I understood that when I was an office holder who took office. And when I took my office, I was given the oath. And the oath was to uphold the constitution. I understood in that that I was no emperor of the people, but a servant of the people, whose policies were only lawful as long as they were in keeping with my oath of office to uphold the constitution. I get all that. I, too, wish more of our elected reps understood that. But let's at least agree on this, that any laws deriving from powers the people granted to the government in the Constitution are lawful and should be obeyed. I say that because I think we bristle even at some of those laws. Listen, when I'm speeding in a residential area and a police officer pulls me over, I have no right to be upset. I'm endangering people's lives. I should have submitted to the law. I should even be afraid when the police officer pulls me over. I keep hearing this refrain on the news. My children shouldn't be afraid every time a police officer pulls them over. Or I shouldn't fear every time I see a cop car come up behind me. And I just think, what? I'm afraid every single time. He has a gun and the lawful right to use it. I'm afraid. Fear of proper authority is a positive good that keeps society well-ordered. When you don't have fear of proper authority, you have chaos. And if you don't believe that, pay attention to what's been happening in our streets. You don't have peace. 
You don't have ordered society, you have chaos. Fifth, pastors, elders, and their members. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll also reference Hebrews, but the first comment I want to make about pastors and elders and their members is that pastors or elders must be men. That's an order we don't like. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He's talking about, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, in the context of Christ's church. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. In other words, submissive. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Do you catch that? He's actually telling you the reason that God has put men as elders and pastors and not women is because that's the order of creation. Now, I don't have time to comment on all that, but he grounds it right there in the order of creation. This isn't just an effect of the fall. This is the way things were created to be. The effect of the fall is that that all gets corrupted and perverted. Authority is misused or abused and resisted and all of that. Men are to be pastors. Men are to teach and be an authority in Christ's church. Women are not. Why? Because God ordered things that way and it's good. We might like it. We might wonder about it. I remember hearing this from R.C. Sproul years ago. He made the comment, how do I know when I'm lacking in holiness or sanctification? So anytime I read the Bible and I don't like it, I just need to highlight that. That's an area where I need to grow. Church members also are to obey their elders. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The members are to submit to or obey their elders. Now, Their elders' lawful authority is bound by Scripture, by God's Word. What is either expressly set down or by good and necessary consequence may be derived. Thus, you have a Christian liberty. But your Christian liberty does not permit you to disobey your elders when they are speaking God's Word to you. You can dismiss them. Like, I asked Nancy Green before the service. She's moving to Tennessee, unfortunately. And with Fred, by the way, so just so we know. But... I asked her before the service, what if I told you I received a word from the Lord that you should stay in Bakersfield because I'd hate for you guys to leave? And she basically said, no way. If she needed a pope, she'd go to Rome, right? That's where you go. That's not in my lawful authority. Six, the creator and the creature. And this is where I want to wrap up. This is my whole contention above. Every other ordered relationship that we try to overthrow is an attempt by the creature to overthrow the creator. We do not want to obey God. We want to be autonomous. In other words, self-governing, a law to ourselves. We see Satan tempt Adam and Eve to disobey God, and they do. They do. They do not heed his word. They go their own way. And all men and women have followed suit. Listen to how Paul addresses this in Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They stand over it and hold it down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man 
and birds and animals and creeping things. We are rebellious creatures. We want to overthrow God's order. And thus we object to scriptures like these. We object. Sovereign grace, we are not God. And it has never gone well for man when we've tried to play him. God created all things out of nothing. He did so in a manner that makes well-ordered distinction, in a manner that brings a unified coherence to the whole. And all this stresses that the one true God is powerful, wise, sovereign, and good. God did all this for our good, but we've sinned. We've rebelled against our creator and his created order. And in our sinful rebellion, we were plunged into darkness, a kind of decreation. We blurred the lines of God's order. We began to deny his good design and purposes, and thus were enslaved into a kind of chaos of sin and death. But God, who spoke all things into existence, also spoke his revealed word in Scripture, and herein he made promises to save us. He made promises to redeem us and to shine the light of a new day upon our blinded eyes. And the dawn, if you will, of that new day came in the incarnation of the Son, who is the word by which God spoke the universe, the old creation, into existence. The word through whom God spoke the old creation into existence is the same word, the Son of God, who took humanity to himself and walked among us, even our Lord Jesus Christ, to bring us into the new creation. The one through whom God spoke light be and it was, also spoke of himself as the new creation. Listen to John eight twelve. Jesus to the crowds, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look at John 3 and verse 16. You're familiar with this text. I want to keep reading though. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Listen, the light has come into the world. That's speaking about Jesus, the new creation, the light of the world. He has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's the question. God created all things, ordered them beautifully with fine distinctions, spoke light into creation so that by it we might see all of God's beauty in his well-ordered creation, that we might know his power and wisdom and goodness, sovereign rule over all things. But we loved the darkness. We plunged ourselves into the darkness. And so God, if you will, spoke a second word, the word of the new creation, as he sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, who is the light of the world, who takes us out of darkness back into the light. Are you trusting him or are you fleeing from him? Are you looking to him in faith? Or are you running back into a dark corner to nurture your wickedness? Let me be really clear with you. If you're not someone looking to Christ in faith, the darkness that you now hide in will become your fate for eternity. 
only it will be a much deeper darkness than you presently know. It will be the darkness of eternal death and hell. Christ has come to save you from that, to bring you into the light, to bring you back to himself, to save you and redeem you and bring you to that new creation, that glorious day when we'll need no sun, for the Lamb will be the lamp. The light will be the glory of God. That's what we long for and look for, Christians. May we look to him. May we worship him. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word, not only this written scripture that we have, but the word who is Christ, the light of the world, the one who's come to bring us out of the darkness of sin and death, back into the light of your glorious presence. May we look to him and trust him and give thanks for him. We pray that for those who are here who do not trust Christ, that your spirit would give them eyes to see, that they would see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and so be saved. May your spirit do that work in them. May we rejoice with you to see people saved. May your spirit also grow us in godliness so that more and more as your children, we walk in the light as he is in the light. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.